0: Turn in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And as we've been coming through the Sermon on the Mount, we're in chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. So go ahead and turn there, please. Our topic today is prayer, because this is where we come to in Jesus' sermon. He's speaking about prayer, so our topic today is prayer. Now, all over the Bible, the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. What is it? How do we define it? I think most basically, we would define prayer as intentionally conveying a message to God. Intentionally conveying a message to God. This involves worship to God it involves confession of sin supplication we're bringing our knees before God It involves intercession as we cry out to God on behalf of another prayer is not there's a lot of false imitations prayer is not just bringing your grocery list to the Lord and it's certainly not giving God advice because he doesn't need your advice And prayer is also not a bridge to get to the next spiritual activity. You know, we pray so that the singing's over, so we pray to bridge our way to the preaching of His Word. It's not prayer. I think if you look at the life of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, you get a good definition of prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15, where she says, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. This is prayer. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now, as we get ready to do this, I want to highlight something that Jesus knows his church perfectly. You go read Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, and he addresses seven different churches there, and he knows them perfectly. He knows exactly how they need to be encouraged, exactly how they need to be corrected. He knows his church perfectly Jesus knows grace community church absolutely perfectly now I don't but I've been asking the Lord Lord, help me see what is it that we need as a church and especially in relation to this passage of scripture that we're in this morning I've been asking God give me a burden give me the burden for our church that you have the burden that you have the concerns That you have. And as I've studied this passage. I've been moved. To ask several questions. Specifically. About our church. God. Have we neglected. Secret prayer. God are are we. As a church. Are we weak in prayer. Are we guilty. Of prayerlessness. Are we a church. Full of high intellects and doctrinal accuracy. But we don't know what it is to weep and worship in the secret place. I've been asking questions like that. And I want to encourage you to ask those questions as well. And to pray, God, give me a burden. Give me the burden that you have, the concerns that you have for your church. Give them to me, Lord. Our corporate corporate prayer meetings that we have on Sunday and throughout the week in our fellowship groups. I've been asking that question that we have, we have these corporate prayer gatherings. God, are these overflows of secret prayer? Is our public prayer an overflow of secret prayer? And Lord, if it's not, what does that say about us? What does it mean about us if it's not? And I want us as a people to be a people that please the Lord. I want it so bad. I long for it. And i pray for it. And I want you to pray for it. That we would be a people that, that please the Lord. But here's a sobering reality. Regular public prayer while neglecting secret prayer is hypocrisy. It's just a show. And it's just for recognition. You see... Theology and sound doctrine, this stuff is so important. There's no doubt how important sound theology is in our lives. It's massively important. I'm not taken away from that, but listen to me. A dry theologian that doesn't know how to pray and never prays, it's an abomination to the Lord. It's a self-confident abomination to the Lord. Here's a terrifying reality to consider and I've been thinking about it in preparation for this. It's when when God withdraws his spirit from a church, but they keep going business as usual. Isn't that a terrifying reality? They just keep going business as usual, but God has withdrawn his spirit. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the church of Sardis is addressed by Jesus. And he says, You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, he says to them, but you are dead. They were content with being a dead church with a good reputation. And where does that begin? It begins with being content to have dead prayer lives, but we have this lively meeting, this lively gathering together in public. You have a good reputation, but you're dead. And I've asked the Lord, are we guilty of this? God, are we guilty of having the reputation of being alive, but we are dead? And, brothers and sisters, I don't think so. I don't come to you with that sort of correction. But I do want to warn us that if we don't take heed to Jesus' words in Matthew 6 a day, we will be that. We will be a dead church, content to be dead, glad about our good reputation. If we don't take heed, To Jesus' words this morning. So please take heed as we read this. Matthew chapter 6. Let's read verse 5 through 8 together. And when you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And at the street corners. That they may be seen by others. For their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's pray and dig into this passage together. God, we need your help. Your word is so powerful, Lord. And yet we know our own blindness, Lord, to read it at times and feel nothing, Lord. To read it and have no response, God. We know our tendencies, God. And I pray that you would help us. Your word is so powerful, Lord. Let it be powerful amongst your people right now. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Have your way in our midst, Lord. Lord, you're our king. You're our God. We submit to you. We're the clay, and you are potter. Mold us, Lord, into the image of Christ. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work this morning that changes prayer lives in our midst forever. God, there's no limits on your power. No limits There's no limits on Your strength, Lord. And I pray, God, that You would exercise Your power this morning. You would so conform us by Your Word that prayer lies would be forever changed and hypocrisy would die. Idols would fall. Lies would be crushed by the truth, Lord. God, do a mighty work in Your people through Your Word. Help us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to consider this text under three headings. One, prayer assumed. Two, examples of how not to pray. And three, the command to pray in secret. So let's start. Number one, prayer assumed. Jesus puts forward in this text of scripture that we just read. He puts forward prayer as just an assumption. Like, of course, my people will pray. Yeah, they'll pray. We see that in the phrase, when you pray. And it says it three times. Verse 5, and when you pray. Verse 6, but when you pray. Verse 7, and when you pray. It's just assumed. My people will pray. And this whole section of scripture in Matthew 6 gives us this, right? That, That the people of God will be a giving, praying, fasting people. Jesus just assumes it. He knows what he's building. He knows what kind of church he's forming. And we see this from the very beginning. So you can go to the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of time, and see that God's people are are, uh, discussed as a praying people. God's people are put forward as a praying people. We see it way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where it says, At this time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. How do you describe God's people in Genesis 4? At this time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of God. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where it says this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Christian life begins and continues in prayer. Calling on the name of the Lord. God's people are a praying people. So there's one thing that's clear in Scripture Is that Christians pray. And that if you don't pray, you're not a Christian. Now maybe someone here today needs to hear that. Maybe you need to hear that today. That you have no heart to pray. You got no faith to pray. There's nothing in you that wants to come before your God and call out to Him. Even with the weakest faith. Do you understand the warning? That the warning there is this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you've got no heart to call on Him. Could it be that you need to be converted? That you need to be saved? God's people are a praying people. Now, I don't say that to say that Christians can't struggle with this practice. Because they can. We can be weak in prayer. We can be strong in prayer. We can struggle with... With this idea of prayer. So what I want to do today is I want to awaken us. I want to strengthen us in this area of prayer. So let's do this. Let's consider the sin of prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Did you know that prayerlessness is a sin? 1 Samuel chapter 12 verse 23. The prophet Samuel says, Far be it from me to sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Ceasing to prayer. He says, Far be it for me to cease from prayer, to cease praying, and therefore sin, and not only sin, but sin against the Lord. Prayerlessness is a sin. It's a despicable sin. It's a sin that belittles God. It's a sin that's rooted in pride. You think you've got it. You think you're fine all by yourself. You don't need God, therefore, you don't pray. It's a sin rooted in boredom with God. You mean you've got access to the throne of grace? And you say, nah. It's a sin rooted in unbelief. All the promises of God that he's poured out. And you don't believe them. You don't take them to God in prayer. It's a horrible sin. Satan loves prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Satan strives that God's people would not pray. Samuel Chadwick said it like this. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when when we pray. No man is greater than his prayer life, he goes on to say. So when you pray, Jesus says this, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. Now, why is that true? Why is it true that Christians pray? Why is it true that Christians ought to strive to be a people of prayer? Why? And I want to try to give you seven concise, quick reasons here. One is this, that prayer is a gift of the gospel. And let me explain that. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God. You have no right to bridge that separation. You've got no right to approach God. Neither do I, neither do you. You cannot approach God in prayer. No right because of your sin and darkness and wickedness. All you deserve from him is utter destruction, eternal hellfires, all that we deserve. And then Christ comes. And Christ deals with the sin that separates us from God because he takes the sin onto himself and he dies for sinners, crucified in our place, our beautiful substitute, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world risen from the dead, and now the door's been kicked wide open that we can approach God as our Father. Prayer's a gift of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ Jesus suffered once for sinners, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. We get to go to God, not only eternally, but in prayer, as a gift of the gospel. It's a gift of the gospel. Can you imagine that? Jesus has kicked the door wide open for you to enter into the throne room of grace, into his presence in prayer. And can you imagine his people saying, nah, no thanks. Why should we be a praying people? Number two, our weakness, human weakness. John 15, 5. How weak are we? John 15, 5. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear how weak that is? You can do nothing. Therefore, pray. you got to pray. You can't do anything on your own. You have to call out to the Lord. Number three, His great strength. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, Lord God, it's you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. God's called you to be holy and to be like Christ. You can't do that on your own, but nothing's too hard for him. Pray. God told us to take the gospel to the nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. We can't do that. But he can. He's strong. So pray. He's called you to lead your family to Christ, and you can't do it. So what must you do? Pray. Pray to him. Call out to him. There's nothing too hard for him. Number four, Jesus' example that he gave us. Jesus was a man of prayer. I wish we could spend longer time here, but we can't. Matthew and Luke, one of the first things Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus is he spends 40 days in prayer and fasting. That's the picture we get. One of the first things that, that Mark tells us is Mark 1.35. He says you yeah, had this busy, busy day. People are at, his, at the house that he's staying in until the sun goes down. And here he is, busy as all get out. And the next morning it says he wakes up. He rises up before the sun comes up. And he goes out to a desolate place. And there he prays. He slips away to a desolate place. And there he prays. Luke 11one 1, you got Jesus sitting there praying, and the disciples see him praying, and he gets done praying, and as if to say, Man, we never seen anything like that before. They say, Oh Lord, teach us to pray. We don't have record of them saying, Teach us to preach or teach us to heal. No, they said, Jesus, we just saw you teach us to pray. He was a man of prayer. Luke 6, 12, it describes Jesus staying staying up all night in prayer to his Father. Luke 5, verse 13 and 14, it describes crowds coming to him. Plenty of opportunity to preach. Plenty of opportunity to heal. But it said, but he would slip away as if this was his normal pattern. He would slip away into a desolate place and there he would pray. Go feed on his example. Jesus was a man of prayer and we want to be like him number five the early church and their example the early church followed this example acts 1 14 says that they were devoted to prayer acts 2 42 says they were devoted to prayer acts 3 1 it shows peter and john going at the hour of prayer to go pray acts 4 says they lifted up their voices together to god Acts 6 tells us that the leaders of the local church are supposed to be devoted to two things the ministry of the word and to prayer. Acts 12, we see the church of Jerusalem in an all night prayer meeting. The early church was devoted to prayer. And we want to follow their lead. Number 6, prayer has been commanded of us. Not only in the passage we're in today, and we'll get there. But in other places throughout God's word, Romans chapter 12, verse 12 tells us it's a command. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2 says, be steadfast in prayer. First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Et cetera, et cetera. We're being commanded to pray. And last one I'll mention, why do God's people pray? Number seven, the father enjoys it. The Father delights in it. What does that do to your heart to know that your Father in Heaven loves it when you come to Him in the secret place and you pray? Proverbs 15, verse 8 says the prayers of the upright are His delight. They're His delight. And so we pray. So Grace Community Church, let's strive to be a people of prayer. Jesus has assumed that we would. When you pray, When you pray, when you pray. Number two, we've got examples in this passage of how not to pray. Examples of how not to pray. Now listen, that's interesting, right? Like Jesus gets us to the place of secret prayer and then he he says, hold on, let me remind you of something. You can mess it up even there. He sets your mind on prayer and then reminds us that sin can follow you even into prayer. Do you want to know how deep the tentacles of sin go into the human heart? You want to know? Don't look at the drunkard at the bar. Don't look at the drug-infested prison. That's too surface level. You think of the godliest person you know and see them there on their knees in a secret place and know that even their self is encroaching Sin is knocking at the door even at that place sin will follow you even into the presence of God and we get warned about it in this passage of scripture there's two examples given to us of how we ought not to pray verse 5 warns us don't pray like the hypocrites and verse 7 and 8 warn us don't pray like the pagans so let's start with that first one don't pray like the hypocrites verse 5 And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What do the hypocrites love? What says there in verse five, they love to pray. Now, they don't love prayer. They don't love God. They love the kind of prayer that exalts themselves. They love themselves. They love recognition and a good reputation. And so they love to pray in this sense. Where do they love to pray? What does it say? They love to pray in public, they love to be seen praying. Now, this isn't a condemnation of all public praying. So we're commanded in scripture to corporate prayer, public prayer, no doubt. So it's not a condemnation of all of it. But it's a warning against the kind of public praying that wants to be seen by others. And it's evidenced by you pray in public, but you don't pray in secret. That's what's being condemned here. Now, why do they love to pray in public? Because they get credit for it. It satisfies their lust for recognition. They love to pray in public. It feeds their spiritual pride. They don't love praying in secret. Why? They don't get any credit for that. At least not the kind of credit that they want. Now, verse 5, it says, if you look at it, it says, In the synagogues and on the streets. And that's a repetition. Verse 5 says they they love to pray in the synagogues. If you go look back at verse 2, it says they love to give in the synagogues. Man, they love to go into the synagogue, you know, and pray and give in in that place. And the synagogue, if you think about it, was the place of public worship. They love to go to the place of public worship to do these things. Hypocrites love to attend public worship but neglect secret devotion and what does that say about them what does that say about them i want you to think about this we have public worship here we've got public corporate prayer meetings in this church on sundays we pray corporately in our fellowship groups we pray corporately now if you love to attend those public worships but you neglect the secret place prayer what does it say about us And the word that's used here is hypocrite. Verse 5 says, These hypocrites have received their reward. What was it? They got the praise of men. They received their reward. They wanted the praise of men and it's exactly what they got. Brothers and sisters, weigh it out. Weigh it out. Be wise when you choose what you want. If you choose secret prayer to frequent the secret place in prayer, what do you get? You get God. You get the Father's reward. You get power for ministry. You get the joy of the Holy Spirit. Weigh it out. Because if you choose to pray to be seen by others, what do you get? You get the praise of men. You get a little pat on the head from frail Man, what a pitiful existence. You've received your reward. Now the second warning, so that's a warning not to pray like like the hypocrites. Now we get a warning in verse 7 and 8, not to pray like the pagans. Let's read that, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard For their many words, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. What did the pagans do wrong? What were they doing wrong that Jesus is highlighting here? They're offering empty phrases. That's that's what it says here. You Look at it. They were offering empty phrases to God. In prayer, offering empty phrases. Phrases. That's phrases that are empty of meaning. Meaningless babble. Spiritual sounding words with no heartfelt meaning. Meaningless, empty phrases. Mark 7, verse 6 says, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. It's just words. And it also says they 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 were heaping them up. They heap up empty phrases. So they're Heaping up these phrases. So so pagan prayer is just a whole heap of empty words. And it uses the phrase many words right there in verse 7. So they're just bringing many words to God. That's what they're doing. They're just heaping up many empty phrases to God. How does God view your prayer life? Does he see it as a desperate heart pouring out a soul to the Lord or just a bunch of empty words? Bunch of empty spiritual-sounding babble. How does it view your prayer life now? Mainly, what's being condemned here in this in this uh, passage is pagans that are trying to solicit attention from their little village gods. Right? That if I just offer up all these empty phrases, then I'll get the attention of my little god. Our God's not like that. Now, there's more modern-day problems that fall underneath that like this would be a condemnation of the meaningless babbling prayers of the pentecostals the cold empty eloquence of the high churchman and his prayers it'd be a condemnation of heartless christianese if you know what i mean by that that you learn all the right little phrases to say and you offer them up as these little empty phrases to god it's all of that And why would someone pray like this? It says in verse 7, They think they will be heard for their many words. They think they'll be heard for their many words. What do they believe about God? What do you believe about God when you pray like this? You think He's this this reluctant deity and you got to work something up to impress Him and get His attention. Listen to me. He's called in this passage, Your Father. And your father's attention has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Christ died for sinners, laid down his life, and you've got the father's ear now. If you're in Christ, he's not a reluctant one that must be worked up. Like, uh, remember the prophets of Baal when they were going against Elijah? Offering up these cries and longer and longer and cutting themselves. And what can I do to get this God to hear me? He's not like that. He's a father. He's, oh, you who hear prayer. That's who he is. We don't come to him because of our righteous deeds, even our babbling. We come to him because of his great mercy. Now, it says here in verse 8. Don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. <laughs> what how does that affect your prayer life? You're not coming to him and he's going, "Man, I wish they'd just tell me what they need." He knows what you need. He doesn't need your advice. Your prayers aren't directing this God that doesn't know what to do. He's a God, a sovereign God omniscient God, all-knowing God who knows what you need before you ever ask Him and you align your heart with His and you go to prayer and you commune with that God and you call out to Him and ask Him for help. But don't pray like the pagans. Now, third, we've got these warnings about how not to pray, but we also have a command to pray in secret. So thirdly, number three, a command to pray in secret. And we see that right in the middle, verse six. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, that's a hypocrisy killer. You obey this verse. It's a hypocrisy killer. Where are we told to pray right here? What does it say in verse 6? Where are we told to pray? We're told to go into our rooms. To shut the door. And then it says in secret. Twice. In secret. Go into your room. Shut the door. Where are you to pray? In this private place. All alone with God. And somebody might say, well, I don't, I don't, what if I don't have a room? What if I live in a dorm room with an annoying roommate, right? Don't miss the point. What's the point here? Get alone with God. Shut out the world. Shut out people. Shut off your phone and get alone with God. Like Jesus, he had no place to lay his head. No door to shut. But what did he do? He went off into the wilderness to pray. He went up onto the mountain to pray. He went off into desolate places to pray. That's the point. Get alone with God. Draw no attention to yourself. Just go be with God. And Him alone. That's the calling here. Do it in secret. Why? Because it kills hypocrisy. It's a way to starve that lust for recognition. Do it in secret. Why? Because God promises a a special revelation of Himself there. Don't you want more of God? Go to Him in the secret place. That's the calling here. So there you are. So you're, you're in the secret place. You're alone with God. What do you do when you get there? What do you do when you get to the secret place? Well, first, you need to recognize who you're approaching. You are approaching the majestic one. The majestic king. How would you approach any other earthly king? You would approach any earthly king with reverence and humility. How much more so the king of king that rules the universe. This isn't hey dad prayers. This is approaching the majestic one. And then listen it says, it says pray to your father the majestic one who is your father. So there's trembling before him and yet because of the blood of Jesus, you've been adopted, you've been made a son of God or a daughter of God and you can say, Father, that's amazing that you can tremble before the majestic one and call him Father. So first you need to realize who you're approaching. Second, you need to pray with expectation or pray with faith what are you expecting when you go to Him in prayer? Think about what it says right here. It says, it says, pray to your Father who is in secret. Who, Your Father who is in secret. You hear how it's saying that? It's like, He's there. It's this picture of the Father just, just waiting for you there in a secret place. What does that do to your heart? Doesn't it make you want to go there? Expecting to meet with God? At the end of verse six, it says he will reward you. Do you believe that promise? Do you go to the secret place with expectation that my God said, pray to your fathers in the secret place and your father who sees in secret, listen, will reward you. What a beautiful promise. I urge you to go to him. Thirdly, so recognize who you're approaching. Firstly. Secondly, go with expectation and faith. And thirdly, it says in verse 6, look at the phrase, to your Father. Pray pray to who? Pray to your Father. Don't recite prayers. Don't go say your prayers. Pray to Him. Address God. Approach God. Commune with God. That's what you do when you get there. You commune with God. You you can sing your prayers to Him in the secret place. You can shout your worship to the Lord. You can whisper His praise. You can remind Him of His promises and then stand on them. You can weep and mourn and confess sin there. You can ask Him for His presence. You can sit before Him in prayer in silent, awestruck reverence before Him. But go there and pray to your Father. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you not to be lazy. Secret prayer is not easy. Secret prayer is hard. It's called labor in Colossians 4. The labor, laboring for you in prayer. So don't be lazy. Uh, Many of you know Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's a conversation that Martin Lloyd-Jones had with Leonard Ravenhill where he expressed to him that that I feel like I can stay up hour after hour after hour in studying the word of God and praise God for that. But he said, but prayer is hard for me. He said, secret prayer is hard for me. It's hard. Now, he fought for it. He fought to be a man of prayer, and by the time he died, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife said, You don't know my husband unless you know him as a man of prayer. So don't be lazy. Fight for it. It's not easy. I also want to encourage you to beware of idolatry. Beware of idolatry. Idolatry kills prayer. And here's what I mean. Brothers and sisters, why is it when you get in that secret place of prayer, you get bored or distracted? Why? Because your idols are peeking their heads in, grasping for your attention. What idols are killing your prayer life? Is it work? Is it entertainment? Social media? Politics? Do you love sleep? What is it? What's killing your prayer life? To be faithful in prayer and faithful in the secret place, you've got to be a killer of idols. And in fact, secret prayer, prayer itself will be a killer of idols. Let me close with just a little bit of sort of advice, I guess, because I want us to obey this. I want us to be a people that, that recognize what Christ has purchased for us, this beautiful gift that you get to go to, you get to go to the Lord in prayer. I want us to recognize that, and I want us to obey it. When you pray, go. Go into your room. Shut your door. Pray to your Father who's in the secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want us to obey that. I don't want us to ignore this. And somewhere down the road, Revelation 3.1, you got a good reputation, but you're dead. Dead, dead, dead. So let me just try to give a few points of prayer advice. So number one, in closing... I want to encourage you to have a framework of diligence and delight, diligence and delight when you think about your prayer life. Okay, here's what I mean. Some people just think they understand I need to enjoy praying. I need to have a delight in the secret place. But the mistake they make is they think if I don't feel a delight in it, then I might as well not do it. That's wrong. That's disobedience. Now, on the other side, you might have another person that says, I'm going to be diligent in my prayer life. And they exercise diligence day after day after day. But they have lost the aim of enjoying the father there. And what I'm what I'm offering to you is this framework of diligence and delight. You see, diligence is meant to be it's not an end in and of itself, but it's meant to be a means through which you get to delight in God. Proverbs thirteen four. it says the soul of a lazy man desires, but has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be richly supplied. So when you don't feel it, brothers and sisters, be diligent in prayer, but don't lose your aim to delight yourself in the presence of God in the secret place. Second, I want to encourage you to pray the word. Scripture says we don't know how to pray as we are. And then it says the Holy Spirit helps us in that and praise God for that. And also the Holy Spirit wrote a book. And in that book, we use this book to pray the word of God. We've got examples all over Scripture of men praying the word of God. John 15, 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. See, it's rooted in the word of God abides in me and I'm praying back the word of God to him. I'm taking his promises, which are like checks, and I'm going into prayer and I'm cashing the check before God. I'm taking his commands in scripture saying, oh God, I want to obey this. Would you help me, Lord? I'm taking the knowledge of who God is in the scripture and taking it back in praise, and worship. That's what you want to do in prayer. Pray his word. When you don't know what to pray, open the Bible and pray His Word. And third, I want to encourage you to view view secret communion with God as a root, a root practice that bears a lot of fruit. Okay? I want you to view secret communion with God as a root that produces a lot of fruit. So in other words, if you... If you are faithful in secret communion with God, it's going to produce a lot of fruit in all areas of life. If you neglect secret communion with God, it's going to have a lot of effect in all areas of your life negatively. I want you to view it as a root. Now, here's the thing. I realize I'm, I'm probably just an overly simplistic hillbilly pastor from Pearl. Okay, I know that. But I'm absolutely convinced... That a lot of the spiritual problems that are represented around this room can go back to this root. You don't know how to be alone with God. You got this problem out here. My affections are so cold. You're not getting alone with God. I don't. I just don't fit in. I can't seem to make connections with the brothers and sisters in this church. You don't know how to go to this secret place and get alone with your God. Because that relationship affects these. Lust. Two things that never coexist. In the presence of God and lust. That problem with lust, part of it is this. You're not getting alone with the Lord. Get alone with Him. Go be with your God. Secret communion with your Savior. The door's been kicked wide open by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's not be a people that neglect it. Let's be a people that love it and obey it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for these words. And I pray, God, that you would protect us, God, from hypocrisy and loving the praise of men. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to as we serve you, as we give, as we pray, as we fast, as we do good works, everything that we do, God, God, keep us from making these side glances to wonder how others are looking at us, Lord. God, I pray that you, you would cause us, Lord, to, 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 to despise this, this love for the praise of men. And God, I pray that every time we see it in ourselves, you would cause us to hate it and to repent quickly. God, I pray that you would teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, what it's like. Let, just like your disciples asked, teach us to pray. God, teach us what it's like to frequent the secret place, to enjoy you there. Holy Spirit, come. Give us the enjoyment of the Father in the secret place. God, we ask for it, please. Please. God, I pray that you would forgive us for prayerlessness, for our pride of prayerlessness. Forgive us, God, for any boredom with you. Oh, how blind we are. God, show us more of you, please. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.